Hey, Florians, I'm Clara. And I'm Danny. And this is Physical Kids Weekly. We're here in the midst of a global pandemic, and it seems that said pandemic has summoned a ram god to our digital doorstep because we're joined today by none other than Dominic Burgess, who plays Ember on The Magicians. Hi, Dom. Hello. How are you? <laughs> Good. We're so excited to finally have you on the podcast. I think this I'm has so been in the works for like <laughs> two years. <laughs> uh huh. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yay. Um, before we get into the like big interview portion of events, tell us how these past few months in quarantine have been for you. What's been keeping you sane? Uh, a lot of TV, a lot of <laughs> binge watching. Um, I have five cats. They keep me entertained. Um, but I'm uh, very much a homebody. I enjoy being at home. I get socially awkward and socially anxious in big crowds Mm. sometimes. So I'm actually okay being isolated. My boyfriend is stuck in Vancouver and he's a stuntman. And so for him, it's a little more difficult because he's used to running outside and climbing and being active and and out and doing things all the time. So for him, it's a little harder. (laughs) What have you been binging? Uh, I destroyed... Two seasons of Ozark in two days. Is that the one with um, Jason Bateman? Jason Bateman, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so I did that in two days, about 12 hours each day. Um, wow. And then I took a break from TV for a while. Uh, but I have Watchmen to get through. Oh, yes. You're going to love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Waco I want to get through on Netflix as well. It's a lot of dramas. It's a lot. I know, right? <laughs> I want to watch like Watchmen for Dustin. But to. I don't have HBO, so. Well, we'll figure it out. <laughs> um, I thought it's wonderful. It's really good. It's really good. So we'd love to hear about your experience with the show. You've been involved with it since the very first season. What's it been like for you? Who are some of your favorite scene partners, and are there any fun behind-the-scenes stories you can share with us? Well, yep. I was there from the end of season one, and when I auditioned, it's one of the first auditions that I've ever booked from a self-tape, where I didn't Mm -hmm. go in the room to meet the producers and, and the creators in person. So it was kind of odd to book something from tape without meeting anyone and then just yeah. turning up to set and being like, hello, here <laughs> I am. I hope you like me. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was great. I went up to do the prosthetic fitting and the guys at Masters Effects are, are so wonderful. And it's the full live cast uh, of the head. And so you just have your nostrils free for about 20 minutes while they do the mold and the cast and they did my arms. I I was raised on Buffy and Star Trek. And so I love, I love that stuff. I love the prosthetic process. It's six hours in makeup and it's a a wonderful artist called Sarah Pickersgill who usually works on me. And it's six hours in, they glue a helmet to my head with little metal points protruding and then the latex comes down over my face then the horns go on and then 
the mud and the dirt that they put on is coffee grounds. So I walk around oh, wow. set smelling of coffee. Um, <laughs> and then they sew the goat legs. Uh, not sew. Uh, they glue the goat legs uh, onto my torso. And then I'm in them for the day. And then I have my hooves, which are a pair of 14 stilettos. 14 size stilettos. Uh, without the heel on the back, so I'm on the balls of my toes. And then oh, I have wow. a, a sort of pair of comfy lifts that are about a foot off the ground. Um, and you've probably seen all the pictures of all the cast members yeah. in those big boots. Just a delight. They did. I'll tell you a secret. It's not a secret. I just wish there was video footage of it. Um, <laughs> between the first and the second season, they had me fly up and they were like, hey, we want to see if you can walk on stilts. <laughs> and it was, uh, what? it was pretty traumatic because I'm not agile at the best of times. And they weren't like stilts that were just like half a foot, a foot off the ground. They were like three feet off the ground. Oh, my God. And they had two stuntmen flanking me on either side oh while I was trying to walk. And I would topple from side to side and they would catch me and put me back upright and after about an hour of practicing with that they were like yeah yeah no <laughs> <laughs> um, and I felt so I felt so bad um but stilts were not for me stilts were not my <laughs> friend uh and scene partners um they're all they're all so lovely all of them I uh didn't get a chance to work with Arjun which I was sad about, but we did get to hang out behind the scenes um, and in the evening, so that was nice. <laughs> well, Ember is such a fascinating character, and I, I remember actually being surprised in season one because uh, he's so different in the show than he is in the books. Like, in the books, he's a very paternalistic god, dispensing mm -hmm. uh, wise-sounding advice or guidance like the hero pays the price and fearing his own uh -huh. mortality. And the version of the show that you play is, is far more whimsical. And so I, I'm kind of curious how you saw him. Like, what are his defining traits to you? And this is a constant debate between me and Danny. What do you think his D&D &D alignment is? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Please don't hurt me. I've never played D&D. &D, and it's a failing of mine as a human being. And I have... <laughs> I have friends, my, my friend Amy Vorpal, she's deep in the D&D community and she, uh, she's a, a dungeon master for a whole bunch of groups. And then I have uh, another bunch of friends who have a group called Crit Juice and they all get together and play and I keep saying like, I'd love to, I'd love to. Um, I have the Dungeons and Dragons 1980s animated series on DVD. And that's one of my favorites. Um, if there's ever a time to get into it, it's now. Oh, yeah, it's true. I know. Right? That's what I was saying. Um, and I keep saying that I want to learn and I want to learn. But I'm also terrified because I know that I just mentioned I binge-watched a TV show. And when I get into something, I get into it really, really hard. <laughs> and so I, I know that it's going to really take up a lot of my time. So I'm also kind of trepidatious. I'm on that fine line. And then in terms of playing him, when the audition was coming up, I went out and I bought the books and I was like, mm. I'm going to really study up on him. 
but just the way that the dialogue was written, it felt so whimsical and very much like a restoration comedy. And he was very aloof and gosh, very, I, I guess in British, I would call him very faffy, just very <laughs> above it all. And yeah, just whimsical and aloof. <laughs> and I played around with it a bit, but it just came out, it came out pretty naturally after I, I read that scene. Yeah. He's definitely not anything like Aslan. That's for sure. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I was expecting, cause I read, I read all the books and I, and then I, I went through it. And so I went into it thinking, Oh my gosh, by the end, I'm going to turn into a dragon and I'm going to face off with Quinton. And, um, and then the show of course takes a, a very different uh, route. Uh, so when they told me I was dying in season two, I was like, Oh, Oh no. Uh, but then I was so grateful that they brought me back a few times from the dead. Yeah. They messed with the timeline a lot in those from the book. Yeah. I always think, um, you know, there's another 39 timelines where maybe I was a dragon. Maybe I did get to, <laughs> to live my life as a dragon, but yeah, you can't control those things. And, uh, I always love going back and I'm so grateful that they, after I was dead, that they continued to bring me back. You got to be a pickle monster in this timeline. I did. I had a lot of fun with that, too. <laughs> that was the most improv I'd done on that day. And every time I would tip out the bucket of pickles, which were really heavy, by the way. <laughs> like, I had no idea that a bucket full of pickles would be so heavy. And then because I'm in the, the stilettos, the hooves as well. Um, oh man, they were heavy pickles. But yeah, I did improv uh, each time I, I tipped them out. I would do uh, a different sound effect or a different groan, and then I would have fun uh, just with a different line of dialogue. And, and they were very generous enough to let me play around with that. So that was nice. About how many takes did you do for that? Gosh, I don't know because they do. They start off with the wides, and then they bring it in closer, and because we were all in a circle around the table. There's more coverage than if it's just a one-on-one -on -one scene right. because they have to get sort of five people around the table. And then when Umba comes in, when Nico comes in, then it's six people around the table. And so it becomes a longer process because everyone has to get their coverage done. Um, but I must have done a good 10, 11, 12 takes. I hope if uh, when the Blu-rays come out, some of that survives because I was having a fun time. It was it was fun. So that day you smelled like coffee and pickle brine. Co coffee, pickle brine, probably sweat by the <laughs> end of that day because I was really, I was really feeling uh, the hooves that day. But it's still it's still so fun even when it's hot. It's still it's still the best job. A lot of people who wear the prosthetics seem to to feel that way. Like even Sean was saying he loved playing. Um, Sir Effingham, even though it was uh -huh. sweat pulling in his ears. In his, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in some ways it's kind of therapeutic, but the process of, of getting it done is kind of therapeutic, um, I find. And when they peel it off at the end of the day, it feels so good because it, it sort of cleanses all your pores uh, <laughs> when they peel everything out. Um, so it's actually kind of nice. And then for the next few days, your skin is so silky smooth. Uh, so it's actually, it's actually feels like it's just a fun exfoliation process. <laughs> Take that. Yeah. 
and like I said, I was raised on Buffy and Star Trek and X-Files. So I'm really into to all that prosthetic and monster makeup. Yeah. Well, Clara, why don't you give him a crash course on what the D&D alignment Okay, okay. Danny doesn't want me to let this go. Um, Okay, so there are apparently more complicated systems than this that I just learned about, but the, like, basic thing is you have um, lawful to chaotic on the one hand with neutral in the middle and good to evil Uh on the other hand with neutral in the middle. And so lawful is basically, I mean, it's kind of what it sounds like. It's, like, rule abiding but if you are aligned lawful it's it's like rule abiding is a is very high ranked um uh-huh. sort of as a uh moral code in and of itself and it doesn't necessarily mean like the law imposed by government but it could be like a dogma for a religion or something like that as well mm-hmm. um, your moral compass right right um chaotic on the other hand is i mean it's the opposite it's basically like fuck with things for fuck with things sake. Um, Uh (laughs) It's, uh, I I think that a lot of artists are chaotically aligned because you kind of have to be to like, right? Like that's the whole idea, the writer's idea of like uh, run a character up up a tree and see what happens and like throw things at them, right? Like that's a chaotic ideal in a lot of ways. And then good and evil, I think are are pretty (laughs) self-explanatory, but Uh you know, basically are you doing things for um, common good or common evil? And like the neutral ones tend to be, I mean, I think neutral between chaotic and lawful is is more of like a easy neutral to understand, but neutral between uh-huh. uh, good and evil kind of means like like it doesn't mean that you're doing thing you're just not doing anything good or anything bad, right? It's uh-huh. it's it's not good place neutral. It's like I would say Eleanor at the beginning of the good place is kind of uh-huh. neutrally aligned between True good neutral? and lawful. Are you talking about true neutral in the middle? Uh, I'm more mean between good and evil, but I, I wasn't thinking about her like lawful or chaotic. But I she mean, might if be it was neutral. Ember, mm-hmm. for Ember, he would be totally chaotic and probably neutral because he would fuck with anybody. He doesn't care about that stuff. He's just out for himself. Chaotic neutral. I think that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought you said true neutral. Oh, no. I don't think I said that for Ember. But it's possible. We can go back and listen. Either way, mm-hmm. I think that's a decent I'm pretty sure assessment. I said chaotic evil, though, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I think you said evil. I think that I think that was the big thing that I was surprised by. <laughs> it was a long time ago now, though. I know. I think that was, like, season one or two. <laughs> yeah, I would go chaotic neutral, and I, I bet Umba would be the opposite. He'd be maybe still neutral. But just the opposite end of the spectrum. Like lawful? Yeah. Yeah. He definitely seems very lawful, ordered. neutral. Yeah. Yeah. Nico seems that way as a human being, too. Very lawful. <laughs> I'll tell him I said that. <laughs> I'm kind of, like, I love the way that the show ended up writing the characters, but there's some things that I just miss about Ember and Ember from the books. Like, it had uh-huh. such a, just such a deep storyline. Like, especially, like, their involvement in Martin and, and Rupert yeah, and, like, yeah, everyone. True. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's like I was saying, you know, I, I read the books beforehand, and so for right or wrong, um, I, I might have gone in being like, oh, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Just the nature of television or, or film adaptations in general, 
there are things that then, as readers, we miss that I was watching Game of Thrones. <laughs> Don't get Danny started. <laughs> after, after the Red Wedding, I was just waiting for Caitlin Stark to come back. And oh, I waited, yeah. And I waited and I waited and I waited. And I was so, so incensed that Lady Stoneheart never came. But then I was like, well, I guess it's it's TV and it's it's different. And then, you know, Lord of the Rings, I was like, why didn't they go to the Barrow Downs? Um, <laughs> but that's still my favorite set of films and I still love it. And it's just, they can both exist at the same time. You know, we yeah. have the books and we have the show and um, one doesn't supersede the other. You have to make peace with it. I think like, there, you know, like there's some things like in series that like if you are a book reader and you're really serious about it, that you just like, you're like, get really upset that they cut like it's something like unforgivable like i've definitely uh-huh. had moments like that within like you know like harry potter or the hunger oh Games my boyfriend's a big harry potter fan and so i enjoy the films but then we'll watch harry potter and he'll be like in the books I'm like okay <laughs> what what's your okay. what's your house oh every i'm a hufflepuff i had a feeling um, <laughs> every time, every time I do one of the quizzes or, or what house are you in, uh, I'm a Hufflepuff. And um, my boyfriend would probably be somewhere in between Ravenclaw and Slytherin. Solid. That's that's us both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we should move on to the next question. Got a little bit off topic. Okay. So Ember in the show is very much a trickster god. Is it fun to play a role like that where your character really doesn't give a fuck about the consequences of his actions except as it does and doesn't entertain him? And what does it that let you do that you wouldn't be able to when you're playing a more straight-laced character? I'm, I'm so lucky as a character actor that every role I do, knock on wood, uh, is so different. And Ember is very much unlike anything else I've played. So it's always a joy to get to go because you feel like you just feel like you're having a party as Ember. And especially because you're in the the prosthetic makeup as well, Mm. there's a part of that that makes performing kind of liberating because sometimes your facial features are hidden behind the latex. And so you might have to elevate your performance a little bit more for your expressions to work through the latex or to to portray the emotions that you want to be portraying. Yeah, it's it's a it's a lot of fun just to be able to to go and, and play around like that. It's like theater. You're doing theater mm. but on TV um, because you're thinking about your movement uh, where possible as, as much as the hooves will allow. <laughs> because I'm not good at walking in the hooves. Uh, Nico was much better. Nico was much more agile on his hooves than I was. How high were the stilettos? Um, they're pretty high. I mean, because I'm 6'5 already, and then with the, the stilettos, I feel like I'm like at least 6'9", six, 6'10", six, and I'm sort of towering above people. Um, but they're, they're kind of the stiletto base, and then there's a foam hoof built out around it. But with the no heel, um, I have to have the staff there. Otherwise, I'll topple over for sure. And then, like, the next day, I can really feel it in my calves and in my thighs um, because he can't stand up straight. So you're always kind of yeah. semi, semi-squatting semi for the day to be able to walk in them. 
I got off topic from the performance. But yeah, it's fun <laughs> and liberating to um to to be able to play him for sure. <laughs> and his like lack of give a fuckness about morality makes it all the more hilarious that like your ca- your character on the good place is a moral philosopher. <laughs> uh-huh. Um so what's it like what was it like going between those two roles because you were on those shows at the same time and how how would you describe the environment in each show? Oh gosh. They are both so I mean 90% of the shows that you go and work on are lovely experiences. It's really few and far between that you you go and you experience something that's unpleasant. Uh, so they were both a delight. It's a, it's a little, not awkward. Um, when you're a guest star, because when you're, as Ember, I would pop up for one or two episodes a season. And then on The Good Place, it's sort of, you pop up for one episode a season. And so... You don't get to know what the full storylines of the season are right. and because you're only seeing those people once a year and usually you're there just for one or two days, you don't really get the same experience of family, I guess, mm. that you would if you were there routinely. But both of those shows, both The Good Place and The Magicians and Star Trek uh, more recently, were so welcoming and so friendly. You know, sometimes you turn up as a guest star actor and you get your trailer and then you sit in your chair and you get up and you do the scene and then that's it and you go home and it's a job and it's very nice. But with with The Good Place and Magicians and, and Star Trek and Flash, they, they are so welcoming and so warm. And when, when they are so welcoming and so warm, I feel like it adds an ease to a performance that you feel like you can take more risks and you can play and you can explore as opposed to sort of just going in and being like, I'm here to do a job and then I'm going to go. Does that make sense? Did yeah. I explain that well? Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, they're, they're lovely and divine. And they always, you know, invite you to the rap parties and make you feel involved. And, you know, they'll send you the, the, the packets before the episode will go live to, to live tweet along and, and the, the images and the gifs, 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 I say gifs, um, to go out. <laughs> At John Carmack wants to know where you looked for inspiration as Ember. Were there other actors or characters that inspired you or were there mythological or historical figures you drew from? I never really draw from real people when I mm-hmm. go and I audition for something uh, because then I sometimes feel like I would fall in, into the trap of doing a caricature of someone. It, it might sort of dull my natural instincts because I'd be thinking like, oh, well, how would how would Chris Pratt do this? He'd probably say it like this. Um, and then it takes you out of your head uh, and sort of dulls your own instincts. But um, like I was saying earlier, very much like a, a restoration comedy fop, very much 17th century, imagining mm. those people with the, the white makeup and the, the big wigs and the stance and very over the top and very elegant, and very upper crust and very, um, <laughs> very well to do. Um, so I would I'd say I would pull inspiration from that rather than an actual living person. I, I played... Uh, Victor Buono in Feud, uh, and that was the first time that I played 
a real person. And so that was a very different process in terms of preparing to audition and, and um, working on that show, because then you do have to get those characteristics and the mannerisms and the vocal patterns down. But yeah, playing something like Ember is very free and liberating to make big choices. Well, and I think one of the cool things about a show like The Magicians is even when it does draw on, like, I think in the books, the the template I always sort of saw for Ember and Umber was Romulus and Remus, right? Like, two mm. brother gods um, who have these sort of, you know, have this sort of, like, yin-yang opposing um, set of traits. But one of the things that I love about the way that the show did it, it is it, it just sort of leaned into the fact that they were brothers who would have a sibling rivalry. <laughs> and then it gives mm-hmm. you much more room to play. Uh-huh. And I wasn't sure um, at first when they were starting to do the second season and they were saying, oh, you're going to have a twin brother. I wasn't sure if I was going to be playing both versions of him. Right. I don't know if they were deep conversations that they were having on their end at the magicians, if that was ever on the table. But from reading the books, I know there were instances where Umber was mistaken for Ember and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh gosh, maybe I'm going to play both and I'll uh, start thinking about how I would play the other half of him. And then they found Nico and we you were very different physically and vocally and uh, in our energies. So yeah, but it, and then it's always fun to play off another human being as well, as opposed to playing off yourself yeah. as a tennis ball in one shot and vice versa. And then I don't know how they would have done it makeup wise. Um, yeah, that would have been I, hard. Yeah, I don't <laughs> know. It's a really um, long days. <laughs> yeah, but that's not my problem anymore. <laughs> Well, we have a lot of overlapping questions from our listeners for you, and I think they can basically be divided into three categories. Questions about cake, questions about costume, uh and questions Uh about cats. So where do you want to start? Oh, gosh. Um, We can start. Let's start with cats. All right, Danny, (laughs) take it away. This is your territory. (laughs) I have a cat. One's actually right next to me. Oh, one of mine just arrived to you. Wait, there's one behind you, too, Hi. I think. Yeah, there is. Uh, <laughs> Ripley. Ripley is behind me. Uh, this is Frodo Baggins. Nub Nub <laughs> is at my feet. The link is in the cat tree, and Pippin is uh, over there in the distance. That's cute. This is uh, Dobby, and my other one, Hermione, is off doing her own thing. Hi, Dobby. <laughs> Dobby and Hermione. <laughs> Where did they get their names? Oh. <laughs> Some, you know, obscure British book series. It will never catch on. (laughs) So, on a scale of 1 to 10, how bananas was it to film the scene with the kittens in season 3? How many kittens were there, and did you try to take any of them home? Oh, gosh, I would have done... I already had five cats at the time. Otherwise, I absolutely would have done... And then, because it was in Vancouver as well, I think there would have been logistics of if I would have been allowed to adopt them and take them on a plane without them having a shot Hmm. and pet passports. I think they did all get adopted though from members of the crew or at least a couple of them got adopted, but there was, it was so good. And I, Oh my gosh, I love Sarah and John so much because they know that I'm besotted by cats and for them to be like, we wrote you a scene with kittens. It's just the best. They were 
so unruly. <laughs> and then I was, I was so anxious because I've never acted with animals before. And then they sort of like drape them all over me. <laughs> and then because I've got the, the horns and the, the hooves and then I've got like sort of long fingernails that are, are glued to me that I couldn't sort of handle them as I would normally handle them. I mean, gosh, they were everywhere. They, <laughs> they were under the, under the throne, around the throne, going behind curtains. And they would have to come and they would have to reset them. And they would be like, no, no, the ginger one was on his shoulder and the tabby one was on his knee. And this one goes <laughs> Oh, God, here. continuity must be crazy with that. Oh, man. And so then the cat wranglers would disappear and then, of course, they'd all move and then they'd be like, no, 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 they've got to go back and they'd run back in and <laughs> put them where they were supposed to be. But, oh, man, I love cats. So I was in heaven <laughs> and I absolutely would have adopted them. I said that like, we really can't adopt another cat right now. But if we were to find one on the street and it just happened, we were not looking for it. <laughs> but it came to us then maybe have you ever been to Istanbul no but so, I know all about the cats of Istanbul uh, <laughs> I did I did research there in grad school and I spent uh, about three months total and two months in, in one two and a half months in one stretch and they're just they're everywhere you go to the farmer's market there's a brood of kittens under one of the stalls I had my favorites there was this so there was this giant, like, Jabba the Hutt-sized um, uh-huh. <laughs> kitten that looked like it. I mean, it was like a bowling ball with a head um, uh-huh. that was in my neighborhood. <laughs> there was one that had, like, a little, uh, like, gray tabby that had a little, uh, like, a little piece taken out of one of its ears that had the cutest mm-hmm. little meow. Oh, I, I, there were so many. So if you lived in Istanbul and that were your logic, like if it just shows up on my doorstep, you would have a million kittens. Uh-huh. A million. Yeah, <laughs> I'd take it. I keep seeing on my Facebook feed every every now and then someone will post, I guess it's this article that, that does the rounds mm-hmm. where you can go and live on a Greek island and look after the cats and you can stay in the, the place for free. And that keeps popping up on my feed and I'm, all the time I'm like, I could do it. <laughs> I could just go. I could go on a writing retreat and just live on a Greek island for a year and look after cats. But then I, I couldn't leave my cats behind. True. I couldn't do it. I couldn't. That's I love cats, but that's kind of the saddest part about them is that they're they can't really travel with you as well as dogs can travel mm-hmm. with people. Yeah. Although I have my friend Vanessa, um, she just drove across to, to Michigan and she took her cat with her and then now she's driven down to, to Florida and her cat travels so well. It just is like, yep, this is what we're doing. And he's so happy wherever wherever they go. And with my cats, we moved house in December of last year and traveling with them. We didn't even travel far. We traveled like half a mile to our new place. <laughs> And if anyone heard us, they were howling. They were screaming. They they did not like change. They did not oh, take well babies. to it at all. I know. But now they're good. Now they love it. Yeah, my cats don't like change either. We like moved once and like they were like hissing at each other for like two days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As if they just weren't the same cats. Yeah. They're yeah, so it's stressful them. for them too. Yeah. Well, you kind of already answered this, but tell oh, us about your cats. 
What are their names? How old are they? And what are their personalities like? Oh, boy. Okay. So, uh, Frodo Baggins, uh, he's six, and he is 22 pounds. He's a chunk. Um, his brother is Pippin, and he is very standoffish. He is definitely a Slytherin. He is not very... Pe- I mean, he's friendly with me, but he'll sort of stay at the other end of the room when strangers come in, and he'll just stare at them and give them the eye. Uh, and they're littermates, they're brothers, but they have completely different personalities. Frodo isn't really a Frodo. He's really more of a Samwise Gamgee, and Pippin is more of a Frodo, I guess. Um, and people will always be like, why did you call him Frodo and Pippin and not Mary and Pippin or Frodo and Sam? And I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer for you. Um, then there's Ripley, uh, who's behind me. Um, she is four, and she's named after Ellen Ripley of the Alien films. Uh, and there's Blink, who is blind. He's three. He's a tabby. And we have Nub Nub, who has three legs. And he's our most recent addition. Uh, and he's pretty skittish. He was found in a pretty bad way with cigarette burns on him. And um, they think that someone had stamped on his back leg. So he's a little oh. he's a little skittish. He loves me. He's not a fan of my boyfriend. But yeah, they're all they're all so special and I love them. I love them so so much. Do they all cuddle you at once ever? Um only if they're so funny, like they used to their routine and stuff. But if you get down on the floor if I'm stretching or if I'm doing sit ups or, or press ups then they all come and flock because they're like, oh, what's this? What's he doing? He's doing something different. Oh, yeah. Home oh. exercise with cat, with cats or dogs. It's Oh, man. <laughs> or if we, move, if we move a piece of furniture, and they have, like, cat furniture and toys, but if we move anything, they'll all come and investigate and be like, oh, what's this? It's so new. Oh, look, look at this. <laughs> you, move, you move this chair in the middle of the room? All right. Or, oh, man, anytime I have to do a self-tape for an audition – and we bring the tripod and the camera out. I have to bring the tripod and the camera out an hour early so they can get used to it in the space. <laughs> Otherwise, they'll all be rubbing up against it and trying to knock it down. Um, but yeah, they're good. Aww. Why don't we do costume next? Uh, you, you gave us a lot about the process for getting into the hair and makeup earlier. Um, but I'm curious, how long did it actually take to get you into full hair and makeup for Ember? It takes about six hours. Um, so if one of my scenes is first up and they're planning on shooting, uh, say, eight in the morning, then usually if the crew calls at eight, I would be picked up from the hotel around three Oof. and then be in makeup until around nine. And then the cameras are ready to go and they're ready to rehearse. And then they'd set up the cameras and, and I go and they do like the little touch ups around the nails and, and teeth and contact lenses but it's a long old process and it's maybe an hour an hour and a half to get out uh, by the time they peel the latex off the hardest part is because they glue the helmet onto my head they have to use q-tips with oil and they have to slowly work their way around the edge and sort of peel it all off which takes uh, a long time and then there's always like little hairs that that get caught and they were, they were talking for a while, like, oh, maybe we could do it without the helmet. And they tried with a bald cap, but because of the weight of the hooves, it made the latex oh. 
rip on on the head, mm-hmm. so there was no way to do that. But it's again, you know, you're you're there and they're so good at their jobs and they're so good at making sure that you're comfortable and that nothing's pulling or or is is uncomfortable for you because they can be long days. You know, you can be filming for for eighteen hours. Yeah, it's it's just great. They're long days, but I I love it so much. How did that compare for like the the makeup process for Picard? You know, the makeup process for Picard was so fast. Really? Comparatively, it was it was like an hour and forty five minutes because wow. that prosthetic was like a foam cowl. So it was just one big piece that they put over my head and then a piece that they put on the front of my face. Mm -hmm. And then the hands were just latex gloves. So they just came on and off. Mm. Um, So it was comparatively compared to Ember so, so fast. But it was a lot hotter because the, the whole face and shoulders were sealed in. So I'm sure much like Sean's experience by the end of the day when they peel it off. You know, you've just got sweat everywhere, pouring everywhere. Yeah. But again, again, because I'm a Trekkie, just another, just a pure delight to, to work on. I'm a Trekkie too, so I, I understand. Uh, that question, by the way, the one about process was from Lauren at House at Murs. I'm forgetting to identify people, and I think I forgot to fill all of them in. So apologies to all the listeners who submitted questions. We see you. Um, the next costume one was from C. Peruski, who asks, what was the most uncomfortable part of the costume to wear? Gosh, three things. I guess for me, the contact lenses, because I'm Mm -hmm. just squeamish about things going in my eyes. Um, by the end, by the fifth season, by the fifth time we did it, I was much more comfortable. And by the time we'd done Picard, I was so used to things coming in and out of my eyes that I was like, oh, I get it. This is, I know now that when the contact lens is coming in, I look up and when it's going out, I look down. And mm-hmm. so it was, by the end, I was much more used to it. Um, and the hooves could get uncomfortable by the end of the day um, after you've sort of been on the, the balls of your feet for, for 18 hours, could get a little uncomfortable. I'm very body conscious and Ember's shirt is sort of open and frilly. If I go to the beach, I'm not the person that will take off my T-shirt or my shirt. And mm. so sometimes I would feel a little exposed being sort of draped on a throne with a sort of open billowy shirt that was kind of sheer. Just because I'm body conscious, I guess. But not a, again, there's, they're all such wonderful people that you never feel that way on set. I think it's your your own insecurities that that come out to play in situations like that Uh, because everyone on set is is a delight no one ever made me feel uncomfortable in any way shape or form well so we have one more from merrily if you had to choose one and only one set of boots to wear for the entire quarantine would it be ember's hooves or henry's red cowboy boots from the good place and my husband incidentally would like to know whether you took henry's red cowboy boots (laughs) everyone wants to know if I took Henry's red cowboy boots I would have loved to have taken the red cowboy boots again they're not comfortable they are uh, I'm size 14 wide and Henry's red boots are 13 medium Mm -hmm. Uh, so for Henry's red boots they 
put me in a pair of tights up to my knees, and then they put talcum powder inside the boots to slide them on. And then when the boots come off, it it's me sitting down and pulling while three or four wardrobe people pull them off my feet. Um, <laughs> such is the way. Um, so it really gets you into the character of like these boots. Oh yeah, <laughs> injured. Um, like when the boots are on, the boots are on. Um, <laughs> and much like the hoop, much like Ember's hoops too. Um, but I would probably say the cowboy boots. Those would be the ones you'd take for quarantine. Yeah. Although you know the platforms that they have, the the hoof stand-in mm-hmm. boots are so comfortable. And so if that was an option, I would take the hoof standing boots. <laughs> well, I think it's on to cake questions now. Yes. Yeah. So did you actually get to eat little cakes as part of your performance? I did. In season two, just before I died, there were a couple of cupcakes that they kept bringing out. And I think I ate them whole each time. So we pro- probably in the se- in the season two finale, I think I maybe probably got through nine or ten little oh my cakes. Gosh. <laughs> oh, they're like yeah. little pedophore looking things. Yeah. But the other cake question is, what's your favorite type of cake? Oh gosh, I'm a I'm a sucker for chocolate cake. It's my downfall. Any like, go to any restaurant and there's chocolate cake, then I'm like, oh well. <laughs> There's nothing we can do. Is it like straight up chocolate or do you like it cut with other things? <laughs> I mean, usually straight up chocolate with like the chocolate frosting and the chocolate fin- like I'm I'm a chocolate fiend. I'm a monster. You and my husband are in the same place. He believes that it's not dessert if it doesn't include chocolate. Mm-hmm. I and love I'm fine, chocolate. You know- but I don't like chocolate in my desserts for some reason. Like, I like just oh, pure yeah. chocolate. <laughs> oh, no. I, <laughs> that chocolate chocolate cake. You could tell me that I could never eat chips ever again. And I'd be like, okay, that sounds fair. But if you <laughs> told me that I couldn't have chocolate or chocolate cake or Haagen-Dazs, then I'd, it'd be game over. Were you talking about British chips or American chips? Um, both. Uh, I will say one of the things that I miss the most food wise since coming since going into like shelter in place is French fries because it just like I don't really want to order food from any of the places that have French fries, Uh but I miss them. I miss them very much and they're a pain in the ass to make. So they are. Uh (laughs) Yeah. I just miss restaurants in general. Mm hmm. That's, like, yeah. one of the things I think I miss the most. It's not the same, like, ordering in or mm-hmm. picking up. Yeah. Also, having to, like, soap down all the containers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I miss, uh, I have a park close by, and I miss going for walks in the park. I tried it a couple of times, and I was being very conscious of of keeping my distance, and then, you know, joggers would run up yep. behind, and they'd be huffing and panting and sweating and they'd run within, you know, one feet, two feet and I'd be like, whoa, never mind. I'm going to go back indoors. Um, <laughs> and I do, I, I miss going to the movies so much. 
Yeah. It's, it's not quite the same. Mm-hmm. No. Netflix party only gets you so far. <laughs> yeah. And because my boyfriend's in uh, in Vancouver, he's stuck uh, up there. So we don't have all the same shows on Netflix that we can watch because um, they have different titles available. And so we'll always uh, get on and be like, what can we watch? And then we can never figure it out. You got to get yourselves a VPN. Oh, yes, I know. I, uh, I use it sometimes to watch some British shows um, like Casualty. <laughs> if anyone knows Casualty, it's a British soap. You don't need to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we watch, uh, I mean, it's on BBC America, so I don't know if it actually, I, I, I don't know whether it qualifies, but our big BBC America show is Killing Eve, which just came back. So that's I'm pretty sure that's yeah. an American yeah. show. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't sure. I mean, it's BBC America, and everyone except for Sandra O oh is British, so it could be like BBC produced. I don't know. I'll have to look it up at some point. But mm. <laughs> I still haven't I done the second season yet. I used Ugh. to watch a lot of British TV, but not as much lately. But when I was like a teenager, I ate that shit up. It's uh, so funny. Because I wanted to move to America because I loved American programming so much, like Buffy and X-Files and Twin Peaks and mm, Star Trek. And I moved here and then England started doing Game of Thrones and Downton Abbey and all this prestige drama. that I was like, oh, oh, well, now I should go back and I should like Sherlock. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Doctor Who came back and got, you know... I'll... That was my first TV job. Really? Wait, who yeah, are you? Was... Uh, I haven't watched in ages, but... <laughs> I, ha- I have three words in the first season with uh, Christopher Eccleston in uh, Bad Wolf. It's on the game station oh, with yeah. the Android. Uh, and I get zapped and turned into Dalek food. And that was my very first TV job at a drama school. I'm going to have to check that out again. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so I have to say one of the reasons that we've both been so excited about this interview is that you've been in so many great shows over the years and a lot of my favorite shows in the last few years. So The Magicians, obviously, and The Good Place, which we talked about, and Picard and Santa Clarita Diet, rest in peace, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> though it won't because it's about zombies. Um, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of those shows are big fandom shows, and you end up in these really recognizable, often comical roles in those. So I, I guess I was curious um, what draws you to the sort of comedic side of acting and what your own sense of humor is like. Um, I'm pretty silly. <laughs> I, have a pretty, I have a pretty silly sense of humor. And... Honestly, I'm not really in a position in my career at the moment where I can pick and choose. Um, I mean, I could always say no to stuff, I guess. But I'm I'm not really at the level where I could be like, I'm going to pick that one over that one um, mm. with competing projects. Sometimes auditions will come in and I'll, I'll read them and be like, oh, yeah, no, that one's, that's not for me. Yeah, I, I'm not at the, I don't have the, the liberty or the freedom to to pick and choose to that extent. Um, but I love those roles. Even if it's a serious role, I'll always, I guess, find a way to eat humor out of it if I can. A lot of my, my training background is, is more leaning towards comedy. Although 
when I watch mm. films and I watch shows, I guess I watch more dramas than comedies. So I don't know. It's a, it's a weird mix. And for a while, I felt like my resume was getting unbalanced and I was only doing comedy. And then I really tried hard to address and be like, oh, no, but I want to do, I want to do everything. Um, hmm. But now I feel like I have a nice balance, I guess. So the next question is, what is your dream role? Gosh, I feel so spoiled because Star Trek was, when I found out that they were doing Star Trek and Patrick Stewart was coming back, I called my manager immediately and told her, like, I'll be, oh my gosh, Camilla, I will be a sliding door. I will hide in a computer <laughs> console. I will be a rock on an alien planet. I just in any way, shape, or form, want to be part of that universe. Um, and then I I knew the casting directors because they had they, they were the office that had worked on Feud, and so I, I went down there with a handwritten note and said, like, oh, my gosh, I would race home from high school and do my homework in front of the next generation, and I love Voyager, and oh, my gosh. Um, and they let me go in an, an audition, and so I, f- I feel like I've peaked because Star Trek was my... <laughs> Star Trek was was it. Um, but I guess um, a dream role for me, like I was saying earlier on, you know, when you're you're a guest star actor and you just pop in for one episode or you're just there once or twice a season or, or come in once a year, um, I would love to find a show where there's that sort of sense of family and you're there for, a, you know, mm. six, seven months working for a season and then you can go off on hiatus and I could say like, great, I'm going to, I'm going to write something and direct something with this four or five months that I got off. And then we can go back and we can be a family again for another seven months. And it, you know, it sounds naive and, and dreamy, but, uh, I guess that would be, that would be the ultimate goal. Well, so can I sidebar us and make us talk Trek? Because, uh, sorry, Danny, I know this is not exactly your wheelhouse, but you got to talk about cats for a while. Um, (laughs) so, Okay. So what is your Star Trek series? Who's your favorite captain? Um, there, you know this is a controversial subject, and there's only one right answer. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's, it's a real mix, and I have, to, I have to preface it, because growing up, like I would watch the odd episode of the original series, and it mm-hmm. would just be on in the background, and it was like, oh, this is fine. And then I saw Wrath of Khan, and then I was like, oh, this is, this is good. So Wrath of Khan, Undiscovered Country, First Contact are my favorite films. On the series side, I love Next Gen, I love Deep Space Nine, but when I was growing up, I would only catch sort of the episodes that were on mm-hmm. when I got home, and so I would get home and I would put it on, and it'd be like, great, but I wasn't aware of the running order or if I'd missed many episodes. And so the first show that I watched from pilot to finale was Voyager. That was the first one where it was like, Oh, there's the, the pilot. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to make time to watch it. And I'm going to tune in every week that it comes on. So that was the one that I watched from beginning to end as it aired. So Voyager still has a special. Congratulations. That was the right answer. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, I, actually, I did an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, early when oh, I moved yeah. to L.A. as well. And the director of the episode 
got switched out at the last minute. And so I was already excited to be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be on a, I'm going to be on a Marvel show. And I turned up and the, the PA was like, okay, Dominic, let me introduce you to the director. This is Roxanne Dawson. And I nearly, I nearly collapsed because I wasn't, ex- it was so unexpected. And it was just like, here's one of your idols. Um, <laughs> and I held it together very well. I was, I held it, I held it together. Well, so you must've been like, doubly thrilled that you got to be in an episode with both Patrick Stewart and Jerry Ryan. <laughs> so excited. I, I knew when they sent the call sheet and on the call sheet, uh, she was just listed as S O N. So I was like, son, hold on. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so I kind of suspected, uh, and she was lovely. They were all so lovely. And Oh my gosh, Jonathan Frakes runs the nicest set. It's the warmest, nicest set. And to see him and Patrick talking together, you can, there's so much love and respect there. It was just, oh my gosh, I was in heaven. I loved it so much. Maybe <laughs> I didn't die. Maybe I'm still alive. <laughs> it's happened I before. Die, <laughs> I die on every single sci fi show I work on Doctor Who, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Santa Clarita Diet, The Flash, Star Trek, The Magician. But you came back on The Magicians. I did. You still got to be a, what did you, uh... Magical emanation? It it was something else emanation. It was something emanation, but divine Uh, emanation. Divine. (laughs) Yes. 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 Divine emanation and eliminations. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, Well, thank you for that sidebar. Thank you for tolerating it, Danny. Um, Yeah. (laughs) This question comes from uh, Trees and Snow. Your character gets to impose all sorts of chaos and whimsy on Fillory. What's one whimsical law you, Dominic, would like to impose on the real world? Oh, boy. Cats. All the cats. (laughs) All the cats. Um, I guess I just, I'd get rid of, like, serious people. I'd get rid of, like, assholes. (laughs) Well, like people that are mean, I just get rid of mean people. <laughs> people, you know, like there's no need to be mean. People that are mean make me so angry, um, bullying, and uh, yeah, it really, it, it, ugh, it's something that uh, upsets me greatly. Uh, so I would just, I guess, turn all those people into, I, I wouldn't even say turn them into animals because I like animals. Maybe you'd like them if they were animals, though. Like, maybe they would be better as animals. Maybe they'd be better as animals. And if not, do you like cockroaches? Because that's an animal. No, I'm not a cockroach. If I can, I'll always try and save insects that are in the apartment. Um, The cats will usually get to them first. Um, The only... I really struggle with spiders. Spiders are Mm -hmm. my... I really have a hard time with spiders. But otherwise, I kind of don't mind any other animals. <laughs> well, uh, my friend has my friend has um, a special curse that she has devised in, in her imagining that um, mm-hmm. anytime it, it mostly is used on other drivers that like anytime um, somebody cuts her off or does something horrible on the road, she uh, wishes that eggs would fall out of the sky onto their car. <laughs> oh. I think that's, a that's pretty good. good. See, that's nice and whimsical. Here in Miami, like, I turn them into animals. And she's like, <laughs> eggs. 
<laughs> How delightful. Well, so um, I'm going to ask a weird question because I wrote it. Why not? Yeah, do. In the books, Ember's less of a trickster, but he's also more of like a disappointment to Quentin, right? Like that's sort of the big thing is that um, he is this god, this figure that uh, Quentin has always looked up to. And I sort of imagined him being like a stand-in for authors and probably C.S. Lewis in particular. Um, Uh And like when you actually learn the reality of this person who you see as a god, you see that, you know just a person or you know at least Uh just as flawed as anybody else um and i just think that's such an interesting experience um and obviously not one you got in the show but yeah i mean i'm curious about your own experiences with that with that like idealization is that the word yeah (laughs) um, yeah i guess that's it i've never i've never met anyone that i was excited about meeting and then been disappointed. I've had the experience, you know, because you, when you, especially when you start off in your acting career and, and you're just so wide-eyed and naive and, and bushy-tailed, and you're like, oh man, I just want to be on a set. I, I'd be so happy if I was just on a set. Um, and I've certainly had experiences where actually one of my first experiences on set in the United States, where I was just happy to work and I had gone onto a set and they had set out all the cast chairs for in between takes and we were sitting there and there were other guest stars and there were, I was a co-star. I just had a couple of lines cause it was one of my first jobs out here and there were the series regulars and I'm pretty good at feeling out when is a good time to speak or when is acceptable or what, like never crossing the line. Um, and someone was speaking in a British accent and I just instinctively said, oh my gosh, are you from England? Whereabouts in England are you from? And the look of disdain that I received from this actor, actress, one or the other, I'll never tell, um, (laughs) the look of disdain and they turned away from me and then we went to, to shoot part of the scene and when we came back, my cast chair had been moved into a separate room on my own. Eggs and, upon them. And then a PA came in and they were like, yeah, man, you can't talk to the cast. And I was like, what? What happened? And so, you know, experiences like that make me very sad and very frustrated. And, you know, then I, I've always vowed that I will, n- I, I mean, I wouldn't even dream of, being in a situation where someone is talking to you and doing that, I don't know. It's it was pretty it, awful. You know, that kind of experience. I've experienced that, but never never from someone as an idol. But, you know, the excitement of being on set and then yeah. being disappointed, I've experienced. Eggs on that person, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All righty. Another listener question from C. Peruski. Were you disappointed that you didn't get to be in any of the musical episodes? And as an add-on, do you sing? I do sing. And oh my gosh, I would have loved, I would have loved to have done one of the musical episodes. And, but it's not, I would never, I would never assume to sit down with John and Sarah and say, hey, 
can I be in a music? Um, it's not my place to ever ask for them to to do that. But I, oh gosh, I would have loved to. Yes, most definitely. Maybe one day. Maybe there's a musical one day down the road. What would be the song that you would most be excited to sing? Gosh, I have terrible taste in music. I'm, I have terrible taste in music. I listen to a lot of soundtracks, mm-hmm. um, which I love. I listen to a lot of Celine Dion. I have a Celine Dion playlist. On That's amazing. I have to tell you a story. <laughs> when I first moved to America, my day job was working at a movie theater in L.A. called The Arclight. And I'd only been working there three, four, four weeks. And my iPod got stolen out of my staff locker. So I know that it was another member of staff that got stolen, uh, that had stolen it. And before I felt anger and rage and frustration that someone had stolen my property, all I felt was the deep, deep shame about the playlists that they were going to find and the music choices that I have because I just, I have terrible taste in music. I, I mean, it's not terrible. No, I no, love you just Celine have Dion. to embrace love... the things that you love. Celine Dion has an operatic voice. Seven on there. <laughs> a lot of steps. If people in England know the band Steps, there was a lot of steps, a lot of S Club 7, <laughs> a lot of pop, a lot of country music. There was a lot. There was a lot going on on that iPod. And I just felt I couldn't look other members of staff in the eye as I was walking around for a few weeks oh. just because I felt so ashamed. But anyway, um, yeah, I'd probably sing something by Celine Dion. Sure, why not? I feel like you should be proud of that choice. Did you see the the Lady Gaga COVID I thing? I did. Um, uh-huh. She, my husband and I were looking at that and he's like, this is not fair to Celine Dion. And I was like, do you think anyone else, any other pop star could have come close to like uh-huh. going up against Andrea or Andrea Bocelli in that? Uh-huh. I, <laughs> I love, thought it I was mean, very I've impressive. To, I've been to Vegas four times. I've, I've seen her. Um, <laughs> she was actually, I think the first concert that I ever went to in England. I'm not a concert person at all because crowds, um, but I think I went to Sheffield Arena and I saw her in concert. That was the first person I saw in concert. And then Shania Twain in Hyde Park. Well, I noticed on Instagram the other day that you are running a virtual writing class. And that prompted me to look up some of your writing credits on IMDb. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was just sort of curious because I think they're they're shorts and they're not, they're not things I've seen yet. What kind of stories interest uh-huh. you as a writer and how are acting and writing different for you creatively? For me, acting... And writing are different. I mean, they're they're the same in so many ways because we're storytellers and, and we're just engaged yeah. in telling stories. So it's just a different extension of, of the other. Um, for me, writing is sort of taking hold of your own career in your own hands because as an actor, sometimes you're, you're waiting for other people to call and you're waiting for auditions mm. to come in for things that you might be right for and... You know, you could be waiting for two, three weeks at a time for an audition to come in, sometimes months. Gosh, there have been periods, especially in England, where auditions would come in maybe every three, four months. And so there's that desperation that that sort of creeps in. Uh, But with writing, you can sit down with a laptop. You can go anywhere. You can go to a coffee shop. You can do it while you're traveling. You're just in charge. You, You can set your own schedule, your own pace, and... The stories that I like telling, they're all very disparate. The short that 
just did the the festival circuit. Sam did it. Um, it's a dark comedy, hmm. and it's Alfred Molina. It's a guy who works in a morgue, and he discovers his celebrity idol is dead on his morgue slab. Uh, so Alfred Molina came on board to do that. And then I'm in pre-production on a, a feature film now, World War II feature, that I'm going to direct, hopefully, next year. And then I have a an LGBT escape conversion therapy center musical and a really heavy drama and a really silly buddy comedy. It's a, it's a whole mix of, of stuff. And especially... While I've been in quarantine, I've been writing the stupidest mockumentary that is making me laugh. But I feel like I feel like I'm going to come out of quarantine and send it out into the world, and people are going to be like, "Oh man, that guy's crazy." But you know, it's fun and it's storytelling, and I, I love it all. We're not uh, on camera for the podcast, but I have a big DVD collection. I just love films in general. So I have I a love- pretty big one too. Yeah, I love physical media. Uh, I don't trust streaming media. (laughs) We finally got rid of like a lot of our old DVDs. But as you know, because we talked about it, one of the DVDs I have left from decades ago is the entire single season of Sliders. Or two seasons? I don't know. Whatever it is, all that exists. Uh Yes, And they still work. They're like 20 years old. And they still exist. Yes. Sliders was a good show. It has um, trailers on it, right? Because th- uh-huh. that's how it was. It was like commercials before you could yeah. get to the DVD menu for Knight uh-huh. Rider and Quantum Leap, which I also have on oh, DVD. Yeah. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> Quantum ha- Leap? Quantum yes. Leap good. I, yeah. But I never feel, I feel like I never got into it in the same way. I think I just got it maybe because I saw the ad for it on Slider. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, of course, I, love I have. having physical media. I love. Yeah. Because you never know what's going to get taken off the streaming services or where yeah. it's going to switch to. And then I have a friend who was living in Los Angeles for a while, and he got all these films on iTunes and on streaming media. And then he moved back to England, and then he was geo-locked out of all the things that he had purchased. Oh, no! And, then, and so he lost all his, his video library because he moved countries. And That's terrible! And the, the copyright ownership in different territories. So I like just having them. There's also a lot of laws attached to digital media. Like, say you buy, like, a a digital video game. You can only use that on two separate devices. So, Mm -hmm. like, if you, say, like, got, like, a third PlayStation because yours broke or whatever, like, you can't Uh play that game anymore. You have to buy it again. Yeah. I just like having them for whatever reason. Even if, you know, the internet goes out for a a night, we can always be like, oh, well, we got a film. Yeah, yeah and that actually, that's like a part, big part of why I ended up busting out that Sliders DVD was because uh, my husband and I are both working from home in quarantine and he he teaches recording tech and all of his teaching uh-huh. is online now. And so he's got these like large videos that he needs to upload on our somewhat pathetic DSL, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. which is good enough to do like... It's good enough for, like, normal usage for both of us or for one of us to do something intensive at a time. So, like, he is not watching Netflix right now. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> but anytime you need to do both things, especially if one of the things is uploading, there, there's, mm-hmm. yeah, you can't, you can upload and do nothing else. And so yeah. that's why I got out my 20-year-old DVD sliders. <laughs> yeah. 
Still good. Still good. I mean, terrible, but good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. This is a really funny one from a listener. Raphael Winters wants to know if you have a theory for how the vial of Quentin's blood from the Candy Witch took in season one. How do you oh, think God. that might have been used in the show? People season are one obsessed or season with two? this. The beginning of season two, right? Yeah, it's actually the beginning oh, it is of season, season two, two. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe she had like a hiking lollipop fetish. <laughs> Maybe she was making lollipops out of his blood. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe there's a maybe there's a clone of him out there somewhere, like uh, a little remade Quentin clone running running around in the forest. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah she like wanted I, to adopt a child, and so she used his blood. Like, yeah, maybe there's a baby Quentin there in the in the forest somewhere. <laughs> or maybe you could combine these, and there is an enchanted gummy bear Quentin running around the forest. Oh, yeah, there you She's go. She's a candy witch after all. Yeah. Maybe that's just her form of payment. It's just like blood. <laughs> Maybe that's just her thing. Maybe there was nothing nefarious behind it at all. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what uh, Sarah likes to say. She's just like, we just uh-huh. put it in there. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. People got obsessed with it. And she's uh-huh. like, we were never going to answer this question. I think yeah. I interpreted that a little differently than you did. I think she was saying... Because she said something about, like, the exigencies of making a TV show with a network. So I sort of interpreted that as uh, either they put it in to have some kind of out for something that the network potentially wanted, and or they put it in and then weren't allowed to make good on it for networky reasons. Uh-huh. But <laughs> who knows? I totally took her as saying, basically, like, they put it in there as just something to drive people nuts because they knew they were never going to answer it because i mean they even bring it up in the the monologue that you give at the end of season two uh-huh or is it season is yeah it's the end of season two i think before i die yeah yeah because you're like oh you're gonna get the answer to this question and then it never happens uh-huh. and everyone was like what <laughs> <laughs> you're probably right i i have um it's not the same thing i guess with the sort of dangling questions, I remember when Lost ended and I was so incensed about who was on the other outrigger and who were doing the, the plane drops of food. And like emotionally, I felt satisfied and was like, oh, I feel, look, these characters ended up together. But then like the logical side of my brain was doing backflips because it was like, but how does it how do they get to the desert when they push that button? Um, <laughs> I recently did a Lost rewatch, and I found it much more satisfying second time around, I guess. I like Lost. I love it. Where do you fall in the uh, BSG finale? I, lo- I love the BSG finale. I, I always fall on the side of maybe... I need to do a rewatch of that, too. Maybe Starbucks dad was like the the 13th Cylon or like a, a human hybrid. Mm. Um, I need to I need to rewatch it, but I never had a problem with it. I guess I had a problem with how she came back and like she was an angel 
I remember having more problems with it at the time. And then when I did the rewatch of it the second time through, seeing how early they planted those seeds yeah. storyline wise. And then I was like, oh, okay. I, okay, cool. Sometimes I get frustrated when plot lines come out of nowhere and it's like, mm-hmm. she's an angel. Um, but they did, they planted it, I guess. Well, how did you feel about the Game of Thrones finale? I love I love Game of Thrones, and I'll I'll defend it to the end. I do feel I don't dislike the endings or the roads that the characters went down. I feel like I needed another ten episodes to get yeah. Yeah. to those places. Yeah. I don't I don't mind or maybe where they less ended battle up. Battle scenes that were half an hour long. And it was so weird that they decided to just keep cutting the season shorter and shorter. Yeah, like I said, I don't mind. I don't mind that Daenerys took that road. It was just so jarring mm-hmm. in terms of the pace that, it, given like the pace of the first four seasons, and then things you know kind of pick up in terms of how fast people are traveling, and then by the last season, I sort of got whiplash in terms of like, oh. Oh, okay, yeah. they're, they're there now. Um, because I guess they were sort of defying the logic that they had laid out in the mm. earlier seasons. Yeah. Um, so, like, part of me was satisfied. And then I guess in my head I'm filling in the blanks for things that didn't show up on screen. Yeah, it was just like at that point in time it wasn't narratively earned. The uh-huh. ending, but like I think most of it, for the most part, I'm like okay, like I can see where it came from, why it would happen, but it just uh-huh. wasn't there yet. It was just kind of like shove it all in your face at the very end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'll still defend it. I still love it. I have the I have the Blu-rays down here, and I'll I'll defend it. I'll defend it to the end. <laughs> that concludes this episode of uh, controversial finales, Yay. and takes us to one of our favorite questions. So we ask this to pretty much everyone that we have on. If you could choose anyone's wardrobe to steal from the magicians, whose would it be and why? Oh my gosh. I mean, Summer's wardrobes are great. If they could be tailored, like, to me and my size, and if I had the gusto to pull that off, then Summer's. And Arjun's was pretty cool, too. Again, I don't feel like I have, like, I dress in, like, graphic tees. Like, I have a Star Wars Cat Cat t-shirt that is falling apart. Um, I dress like a a 14-year-old child, to be honest. Um, I don't don't dress the success. Gosh, I'm I'm digging a hole. (laughs) Like... I'm not fashionable. I'm the least fashionable person in the world. And so when I see people wearing clothes and I'm like, oh, that looks good. And then I try them on, then I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. This is, I don't, I don't have the confidence or the, the gusto to, to pull that off. But Summer's wardrobe is, and Hale's, everyone's wardrobe on there is like really good. I just had like, a potato sack frilly open shirt. <laughs> even Umba, even Nico got to have like nice pants and he got to dress up nice as a human. I got the raw end of the deal. 
<laughs> it would have been nice to see like a human like just the ram end of the deal. They were talking about that, you know. They um in the writers' room for that last episode, we went and we sat down and I, I saw Sean and and then the writers were like, you know, we were talking about having you be a human in this episode. It's like I'll take it. I'll do it. <laughs> Make it happen. But no, I I loved it. Um yeah, everyone had a nicer wardrobe, huh? <laughs> the things we find out in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we actually are to the end of our questions and our listener questions. Um, Dom, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been just such a treat to talk to you. I hope your quarantine is pleasant and filled with cats and tiny cakes. And yeah. that everything, this virus goes away and we all get to get back to life soon and to those movie theaters. So, yeah. Thanks for coming. Yeah, me too. Thank you so, so thank much. You. This has been so nice. Yeah. Bye. 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 Mind slide. Maybe she was making lollipops out of his blood.